Howdy, everybody. Are you getting over the winter depression? I just feel like a hundred times better than I did a month ago. Except for the fact that I dug out one flower bed and I almost seized up in, seized up in physical disability and exhaustion, which is not good news, but we've got some months to increase muscle tone. So um, we're going to do something this morning that I've never done before in 10 years of ministry to adults or any of the time I was a youth pastor. We're going to talk about, and hold your breath, Oh, how did we get there? Can you bring us back to the beginning if you could? We're going to actually talk about Bible prophecy. Yeah, I know you're all really excited. And um, bring us back to that second slide if you can up there, guys. Are you about to leave that? All right. Do, 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 do. All right, don't pay no attention to the screen. Um, so what we're doing is— um, because you see, like, when, when some of you will hear this, like, this idea of Bible prophecy, like, those of you who are from, like, fundamentalists or, like, hardcore Baptist backgrounds or whatever, you'll hear that and you'll be kind of like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? We're going to talk about Bible prophecy because that isn't that—I'm sorry, just don't look at it and then— <laughs> Right? Okay, so Bible prophecy, right? And over a lot of people that conjures up like terrible clip art and like people trying to figure out when the Russian helicopters are going to come and kill us and like all this kind of stuff. And um, it, it sort of takes on this idea of kind of like this hokiness and whatever. And oftentimes people look at that as like with fundamentalist disdain. And also part of the deal too is, is that people get so into Bible prophecy that there's a certain kind of secular disdain for it because people, people can get the attitude. It's like, you know what? Th this is why Christians talk about Bible prophecy, because they don't want to talk about the real world. They don't want to deal with poverty and life and math and science and like whatever and all this kind of stuff. They, they want to go into their little churches and talk about possible future events and codes built into little verses of things that were written 3,000 years ago so that they just don't have to deal with real life, which is a little ironic because what most people tend to be by, mean by real life is like that which Hollywood creates and the, which we see on our televisions, which honestly, I would rather go for reality to a fundamentalist Bible camp than to watch the standard television show that's on my TV. It's more real. Um, however, um, one of the things that, um, one of the, there's two big places where you get this, what's called apocalyptic literature, um, in the Bible, and that, that has a lot of sort of future-focused prophecies that are not like, hey, you're doing it wrong, like some of the other ones, but like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And one of them is the book of Daniel. So Daniel comes at the end of the Babylonian captivity, and there's just a bunch of passages that really do look forward. And the funny thing about Daniel is, is that you don't hear about it much in church because normally it's like, you hear about Daniel in the children's ministry. Like, for some reason, the children's ministry gets all the stories that should wake them all up screaming at midnight. You know, it's kind of like the church has—it's kind of like the children's ministry revenge that we've actually procreated too much, so they want our kids waking up screaming at 11 just when you're getting some alone time with your wife. You know, and be like, I can't sleep because we didn't know it and all the people died. Or like, oh, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were just thrown in this big furnace because some government guy wanted them to be. And then all the people whose job it was to throw them in were immediately incinerated. And yeah, they lived, but like they weren't even sure they were going to live. And I don't know, is somebody going to burn me alive? Because I don't really know. Right? Or Daniel in the lion's den. That's not gruesome. Right? Daniel's like, yeah, sorry, I can't worship you. Okay, we're going to throw you into a hole with lions. Awesome. He gets thrown, and you're like, well, but, but the lions don't eat him because he has faith. Okay, great, but you know what happens when they take him out? 
They go and get all the people that accuse them, their wives, and all of their children, and throw them into the lion's den. And while these kids and wives and people are, haven't even hit the ground yet, it says that the lions jump up, smash their bones, and tear their flesh off. Now, I'm kind of trusting that Kathleen doesn't tell that part, or something. But like this, but this is, but listen, Daniel is a book for grown-ups. The reason it's for kids is because kids can metabolize much more than we ever dreamed they could. And we don't need a pansy around when we tell them about the Bible. The world is this way. These things happened. God was sovereign in them. We can tell these stories in children's ministry. But they're designed to create a certain—why are—why are these stories in the same book? I mean, that's basically the whole book of Daniel is— Christians with some actual convictional and courageous character. I didn't mean to alliterate that much. Stand up to people and future Bible prophecies. That's the whole book of Daniel, right? Chapter one, they're like probably teenagers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. The first thing they do when they've been made slaves is they go to the cafeteria and food is served that they can't eat under Jewish law. And everybody else just starts eating it. And they go— can't eat that. So they go to the official and be like, can we not eat the food the king actually commanded you we had to eat? Can we just eat vegetables? And they're like, you're a teenager who wants to just eat vegetables. That's, uh, it gets my attention. I'm going to be honest with you. And like, but that, they're willing to die over not eating ribs, right? And then, and then you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Bill. They're willing to be thrown in the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to a big statue. That, that incidentally, Nebuchadnezzar probably got the idea from, from one of God's prophecies. We'll cover that in a minute. And then Daniel, he's only got to worship no other God but, but the, the God Nebuchadnezzar himself for just a few days. But he won't do it. And so they throw him the lines down. And then that goes with futuristic biblical prophecy. Why is that? And here's why. Because God tells us things to strengthen us. That's what he does. He, t- he tells us stuff to strengthen us. And one of the things that he does to strengthen us is he tells us things about the future long before they happen that happen so that they can strengthen us. In Luke 24, where there's these two people um, on the road to Emmaus, right? And this guy shows up who's Jesus, and they don't know it yet. And the attitude of this guy when he shows that he's Jesus isn't, oh, you know what, you're right. All those Bible prophecies were so cryptic that you could, there's, there was no way for you to figure out what they were going to say. I just did them so that, you know, you could be confused. Right? No, what he says is, Jesus, they're like, do you don't do know what happened? And so Jesus asked, well, what things? It's about Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. When they went to the tomb early this morning, they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, now listen, Jesus is not joking here. He's frustrated with them. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And with the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now think of the contrast here. Think of the contrast. What did the apostles do when Jesus got crucified? They ran like scared children, right? And they're not weaklings. They're probably as brave as you and me. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it yet. Now, it appears like Jesus may have intentionally done that to save their lives because he had further uses for them. But they all ran like scared children because they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't have the kind of convictional courage that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. They just didn't have it. It wasn't part of who they were. They weren't strong. They weren't willing to lay down their life to stand up for what they knew was true about the God who rules everything. Right? Meanwhile, subjugated Babylonian slaves for whom there is no one to save them and nowhere to run stands up in front of a king and says, I actually don't have to explain myself to you, king of kings. My God is higher than you. I can't worship you. Do with me whatever you think you want to, but be careful because God might save me from your hand even. Right? Those are very different effects. So all I want to do this morning is I just want to go through a couple of the Bible prophecies, futuristic Bible prophecies in the book of Daniel. And specifically how they relate to the gospel, how they relate to Jesus. Okay? The first one I want to do is in Daniel 2. And we'll just call this one the statue and the smashing rocks. Now, okay, so this is the background for this passage. Nebuchadnezzar, who is perhaps the greatest king in terms of like a bunch of things in the ancient world— um, has a dream, and he knows it's from God. And he doesn't understand one lick of it. And so he gets all the wise men, the astrologers, and whatever's together, and he says, I need to know what this dream means, but there's a catch. I'm not going to tell you the dream so that you can interpret it, because I think you're just going to make something up. So you've got to tell me what the dream is, and then interpret it. And they're like, dude, dude that's, that's actually not how this works. King, Lord, that's not how we do this. And he says, okay, well, there's a, here's the other catch. There's a second catch, and that is, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. To which they respond, not, well, we'll give it a try. To which they respond, king, no king, no matter how great in the history of the whole world, has ever asked this of his wise men. It's not possible. Nobody can do this. There is no spirituality, religion, astrology, any science, anything that can do what you're talking about. Nothing. And so he goes, all right, well, you're all going to die. Off you go. And so the soldiers are gathering him up, and he says, he says to kill not just the astrologers or the shamans, but all—anybody who's classified as a wise man. Apparently, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel are all in that group. They're advisors, right? And so, you know, they're sitting around having some subway, and like the general comes in, and he's like, well, it's time for you guys to die. And Daniel's like— What's happening? And, it's, and it says in the text, and this is, I think, important, that Daniel stood up and he addressed this official with discretion and tact. A lot of Christians could learn from that. The guy comes in and says, you're going to die. And Daniel's response is not to emotionally fly off the handle or to, or to like, get all cranky. Or but he gets up and he immediately tries to figure out what's happening is there a solution? How do I need to talk to this person? How do I show proper respect? How do I, how do I go get from here to there? Right? And he goes, so what, 
why am I going to die? Right? And, he go, and then he says, why did the king, you know, help me understand this. Why did the king create such a harsh decree? And then he goes, well, I'd like to have a go. I mean, if we're all going to die, I would like to have a go. So can I get on the king's schedule? And he goes, okay. So they pencil him in. And, he, and it's not till the next day. So he goes back to his buddies and he's like, I think we should pray. Now think about this. If God was nice, right, Daniel would already have the dream's interpretation. So when the guy showed up, he'd be like, oh, no, why you're here. I'm not going to have to die here. I'm ready to interpret the dream. No, that doesn't happen. He shows up. Daniel thinks he's going to die. He's like, uh, so he buys himself a day and he prays. And here's one of the things you'll find if you read the book of Daniel. Everything amazing that God does, God does in response to only two things. Now, some things he initiates, like the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. But many times he responds to a human action. There's only two human actions that God responds to in Daniel. Convictional, do what you want with me, even if you skin me alive, faith, and prayer. That's it. That's it. When was the last time— I'm going to say you because I want to press this in, so I'm not going to say we in this case. When was the last time you did either? Real problem. You prayed. And you asked all your buddies to pray. Or real confrontation. You act with character. With discretion and tact, but with character. Putting yourself in the hands of God. Right? It's tough. That's, that's not, that's, that's a good small group question, right? You better do an icebreaker before that one, though. Right? So then, Daniel goes to sleep that night, and he gets a dream, and he gets the interpretation. He shows up the next day ready to roll. And so this is, this is that passage in Daniel chapter 2. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to the things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery was revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Still discretion intact. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching— a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze and silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. Here's the interpretation. This is what the dream this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Now, he got some of that from Jeremiah. Jeremiah explicitly said that about Nebuchadnezzar. But he also recognized he was the golden head, right? He has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. He makes the 90-foot golden statue of himself to make everybody worship in the very next chapter. Okay? Side lesson. Be careful about selectively listening to God. Who hears that and goes, <laughs> What he apparently heard was, He is the king of kings, he has everything, and he is the golden head. <laughs> awesome! 
he did, apparently did not hear, God gave you everything. And the golden head turns to dust at the end of this. Right? We'll get back to Nebuchadnezzar. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some strength of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay." As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture. It will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So it's an empire that will grow so large, it will become so racially, racially and culturally diverse. It will try to hold everything together through a certain kind of pluralism, but it won't be able to. And though it seems strong, it will eventually disintegrate because of its inability to hold things together. It will be strong, but it will turn brittle and it will shatter, okay? Now, if you don't already know that's Rome, you did biology in college. Okay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. In the time of those kings, that is connected to a later prophecy in Daniel where the, the, the creature that is, points to the Roman kingdom has ten horns, and then three horns get taken away, and then there's another really cough, cocky trash talking horn that goes in there, but we can't get into that right now. The God of heaven, but in that time period of those kings, there will be set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, um, it does not take a historical rocket science, rocket scientist, to know how to interpret that passage. Um, Daniel tells us who the first king is, so we know where we're starting from. The kingdoms appear to be clearly consecutive. There'll be four great kingdoms. The end of the fourth kingdom, that will be a split kingdom that will change somehow in the middle. At that point, this rock will come in and create the, the greater kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's Messiah, right? We know the first one is Babylon. At the end of the 70 years that the Jews are in exile, the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and conquers and destroys everything. And they're the next empire. There's no question about that. Um, there is no—there is no Mede Empire before the Persian Empire. There's just the Medo-Persian Empire, okay? So the Persians become the second empire. Um, it's a larger empire, but it's functionally inferior. Most Bible commentators believe that it's actually morally inferior. Now, if you—now, most people only know this because of the um, computer-generated abs in the movie 300, but the next big conflict is between the, the Persian Empire and the Macedonian Alliance, the Greeks, right? After Xerxes tries to take over Greece, um, there be, Greece realizes it's, it simply cannot exist in fundamentally independent nation-states and beat Persia. That's not going to work. Um, voluntarily coming together in the way the Greek city-states did it didn't work. And so a Macedonian alliance was formed of all of Greece under a guy named Philip. Philip had a relatively famous son, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered everything. 
He's one of the only generals in history to never lose. He almost got killed a couple times, but he never lost. So much so that the Greeks and his armies ultimately said, we shouldn't go any further because the end of the world must be over the Himalayas. One of the interesting things about this, and I don't think this is a fulfillment of the Bible prophecy, but later on there is a prophecy about the Medo-Persians. It's a ram with two horns. Get it? The Medo-Persians, right? One is smaller and grew later than the other. That is, the Persians came later, and they, but they grew faster in power. So you've got this ram, and the ram is whooping everybody's behind, right? And then this goat comes out of nowhere, and you're like, goat versus ram. Like, that's like animal rock, paper, scissors. Who wins? Ram, right? Except— the ram has—the the goat has one horn, right? So one—you know, it's kind of like the, you know, like horn in the middle beats two horns on the side, right? And so he comes in, and he like trashes this ram, and you're like, how did—and then there's like—and nobody could save the ram from the little goat. And you're like, what on earth? Do you know what happened? How the Persians were defeated? So Alexander the Great shows up. There's a river— and so he knows the Persians are going to flank him because they have more people, right? Because that's what you do. You don't attack in the middle if, if you have more people, you stretch them out and then you break them apart, right? So Alexander knows the Babylonian or the Persians are going to flank him. So he attacks on one of his flanks first. And the Persians reinforce that side. And then instead of waiting till the next day to attack, he takes everybody, including his cavalry that he is part of himself, and he goes right down the middle. So it's kind of, it's what Lee tried to do at Gettysburg with Pickett's charge. He pulled him out and then tried to split him down the middle. He tried to copy Alexander in Persia, except he didn't count on the cannons quite as well. Um, but, but that's what Alexander did. He rode right down the middle. He split the Persian forces. He captured all the noblemen, including killing a number of them, and the battle was over. The two flanks fled. He owned Persia. It was the greatest victory, one of the greatest victories in the history of the world, militarily. One horn splitting two horns and beating a much more formidable opponent. Now, I don't have any idea if that's what that passage of Daniel means. I have no idea. I just think that's really conspicuous is all. But the third kingdom is Greece. There's no question about that. Unites the whole world under common language. Begins to create trading across satraps that it never existed before. United in some ways the East and the West and created a global society in a way that hadn't existed since the Babylonians. And then who comes after the Greeks? The Romans. That's not rocket science, right? Are the Romans a split kingdom? Right? If you paid any attention in 10th grade social studies, right? There's two eras of the Roman Republic. Where there's, well, of the Roman Empire. There's the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire. It switches over in about 27 BC, right? It becomes a split kingdom, and that's when it begins to change. The empire, when it becomes an empire and is no longer a republic, and it spreads out more and more and more, it becomes more diverse but doesn't have the ability to take care of it. It, be, it begins to create land policies that make people not want to work with the central government, all these kinds of things, and it and eventually begins to collapse on itself. It's in that era, from 27 BC onward, that the stone comes in, that God has cut out with his own hands, shatters all the empires, and raises up to be a new kingdom over all peoples. Now, what that means is, uh, we need to come up with a series of nominations for who the anointed one is in the latter half of the Roman Empire. It's not a long list, incidentally. 
Because all of the other high-level Jewish people that you could get a son of David out of, it's already over. The Maccabean Revolt ends in the 170s. That's the last time the Jewish people had like a big fight, and they kind of won, sort of. And so many Jewish rabbis look for some of these messianic promises to be fulfilled within the time period of the Maccabees. The Maccabees are too early. It's too early. It's after that. So who you got? It's a short list, turns out. Now, you might say, okay, yeah, okay, let's say that works. But, you know, that's—Jesus didn't set up the kind of kingdom you might expect from that. You might, like, you might expect it to be like the Roman Empire, like the Greek Empire. Like, it's, it's over everybody. He's King Jesus. Like, everybody's ruled over. Like, that's not really what Jesus did, is it? I mean, like, he rolled—he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, so he's in his glory, but not everybody knows that, right? And that's kind of how he's doing his conquest, right? He doesn't want to just kill everybody. And make them him slaves. He's inviting people into the kingdom. And so it says in the Bible that now he waits patiently as all of his enemies are put under his feet. More slowly, more methodically, more mercifully, and more compassionately, and by persuasion rather than conquest. There is no—there is no conquest. There is punishment and there is persuasion, but there is no enslaving. Now, To answer the the question about that, um, we go to the next prophecy. And what it says in the book of Daniel is that Daniel was studying his Bible. There was a generation of prophets that came before him, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and before them Isaiah, that said a bunch of stuff about what was happening. And so he was like, well, I wonder what it it says. And he's studying his Bible, and he realizes that one of Daniel's favorite verses is one of the normal Christian's favorite verses. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, you know that one? Except he liked the whole context because he was living in it. The verse was actually about him much more than it was about us, more immediately. Because this is what the passage actually says, right? Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They prophesy lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Meaning that there was a bunch of prophets that were in the Babylon, among the Jews in Babylon, right when they went in exile, and they were saying, oh, three years and we'll be back in Jerusalem. Yeah, we're in exile. This is going to end. God is going to help us. We're going to repent for like— 36 hours, and then God is going to send us right back to Israel, and we'll rebuild it. And Jeremiah says, you want them to say that. You have this fun little emotionally codependent relationship where you kind of insinuate what you want them to tell you. They tell it to you, and you accept it. And he's like, it's not true. He says, this is what's really going to happen. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Right? I carried you into exile. I will bring you back. And what is the effect on the humans that is supposed to happen? They're supposed to learn what? To seek God. To pray. To want to follow him. To want to trust him. And that's exactly what happens in Daniel 9. Said in verses 1 through 3. Daniel is reading this in Jeremiah. He, he does the math. And he realizes they're like in the last three years of the exile. And at this point, he's like in his 80s or maybe even his early 90s. 
and he's like, I wonder if I'm going to make it. And, is, and of course, the question on his mind is this. If this is when Jesus or God restores Israel, what it means is this could be the time of the Messiah. This could be the time of the final kingdom. This could be when it's going to happen. This, right? Possibly. Um, and so he prays. He prays the kind of prayer that that asks for for about 20 verses. 17 verses, I think, technically. Repentantly, like, God, this is what you did, and we deserved it, and this is who we are, and this is who you are, and we want to belong to you, and so on. And then he gets to verse 20 in Daniel 9, and Gabriel shows up. He's kind of the star angel, right? And those are verses 1 through 3 that I just told you about. And this is what he says. This is now Daniel writing. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God from his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy or complete it or fulfill it, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, place is an additional word the translators have put in. It just says the most holy that's what the text says. Now, notice here, you're like, why, why does it have to be cryptic like that? 77s, how many sevens? And what the, what the? Here's why. Because what did Daniel just come to the end of? 70 years. So he comes to the end of 70 years, and he says, and he's, he's, his, his, is now the time of the fulfillment of what you said, right? Is the son of David going to be the new shepherd? Is the branch of Jesse from Jeremiah going to be the new covenant, one who brings in the new covenant? Is the one who in Isaiah 9 is called the king of kings and the lords of lords and the prince of peace, who is the suffering servant of the 50s? Is now the time when he's going to come? Am I going to see it? Am I going to live long enough, right? What's going to—is now the time? And, and Gabriel goes, Daniel, it's actually not just 70 years. There's still 77 sevens of years to go you're actually not going to see it. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get to know what's going to happen. And here's what's going to happen. This is all going to happen. And there's six things in this, and it's important for us to recognize them. They are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression or to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness or iniquity, right? To bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up or complete or fulfill vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place, one, depends on how you understand that context, okay? Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, uh, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death, and will have nothing—sorry, and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and in the middle of the seven he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. At the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. 
That's crystal clear, right? You got that? And we're done. And amen, right? So the question of, sort of the implicit question, Daniel, am I going to make it to the time of the Messiah? The answer is no, right? And in the final prophecy of Daniel, the angel actually says, you're going to die, but you're going to be raised, and you're going to be part of this in the end, right? But what, but what does this mean, and why is this supposed to strengthen? Now, there's two interpretive questions that are important to recognize. One is, the word for Messiah here is just Messiah. It's just a Hebrew word that means anointed one. It, it neither has the or a in front of it. And this is the dispute. Should it say a Messiah, a leader, or should it say the Messiah, the leader? Hebrew doesn't have an a. It only has a the. Right? It just says Messiah will come, a leader. Or Messiah, leader, will come. Now what does that mean? Does it, because in the Bible, Cyrus, who is a pagan leader— who has nothing to do with the Jewish people, is called a Messiah, an anointed one, because God uses him to let his people go. He's called up and created and used by God for a particular purpose in his salvation history among his people, and so he's a Messiah, right? And there's some other not pagans and other characters in biblical history that are called anointed ones or messiahs. But yet all through biblical history, and especially in the later prophets, it's very clear there is going to be a Messiah, the Messiah, the one, the Savior, the Son of David, the new shepherd, the branch of Jesse, the one whose name is the branch, the, from all these later prophets. So the question is, is this Messiah the Messiah or a Messiah? And here's the thing. You can't win this one on a word study. It's context. What does the context say? And so I ask you, when you read the context, does this sound like a Messiah or does this sound like the Messiah? And I just would refer you to verse 24. Oops, wrong button. Right? Well, this Messiah is going to do—this is what he's going to do. He's going to complete transgression or sin. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for all wickedness and iniquity. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up and fulfill all vision and prophecy. And he's going to anoint the most holy. Now I just ask you, does that sound like a Messiah? Or does that sound like the Messiah? I don't think it's close. I think it's clearly the Messiah, right? The second is um, whether or not it's a fluid timetable or there's breaks. Is it seven sevens and then some kind of break, and then 62 sevens and then some kind of break, and then the last seven? Or is it, does it all flow directly? And the answer to that is I don't know. Because it reads like it all flows directly, but so does Matthew 24, and Matthew 24 is clearly not supposed to be taken all directly, right? And so people have speculated a lot on how it breaks up and where it goes. However, there is this. So, so the question is, okay, I may not be able to discern from this everything that it possibly says. I'm not exactly a Bible end times, Bible prophecy scholar. But you can ask some questions like this. If we can't know, or if Nick can't tell us what this maximally says, what does it minimally say? What, what can't it say less than? Does that sound fair? Now, what it can't say less than is this. When you add seven sevens and 62 sevens together, which is 482 years, I think, by the end of that time, a second temple has to be rebuilt. After that, a, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be cut off or put to death. That cut off language goes, is used in Leviticus for people who are killed judicially. 
It'll say, such and such a person who does such and such thing must be cut off from his people. Most Bible scholars believe that that represents a death sentence for that crime, and it's an exclusion judicially from the people of God. Right? The Messiah, the one who is perfect righteousness, will be cut off. Right? And then after that, it says that a ruler of a people will come and destroy the temple. Okay? Now, the destruction of the temple, that we know that. That's 70 AD. Titus comes from Rome. He destroys the whole city of Jerusalem. He tears down everything in the temple. They actually burn it so hot that the gold inside of it melts, goes into the cracks of the foundation, so that Titus commands them to rip apart the foundation to get at the melted gold inside. Hence, Jesus said, every stone will be torn down. Right? We know, we, so we know the backstop is 70 AD. So the question is, where's the front stop? Now the problem with that is that there's, in the, just in the Bible, there's four decrees to rebuild the temple. Because there, there are some political problems that happen where the king says something should be done, but then lesser like kings in the region go, you can't do that. And then there's all this turmoil and bureaucracy. And then so like a hundred years later, there's like another decree, right? So um, the first one happens, so let me tell you the four real quick. The first one happens under Cyrus, the first of the Persian, of the Persian kings that makes one in 537. The next one happens by Darius in 521, and then Artaxerxes does two, 458 and 444. Now, a lot of Christians, especially Christians who are really into Bible prophecy, they uh, take the 444 date. So if you run into somebody who's like, what's that? It wasn't Cyrus. It was, you know, it was in Nehemiah when Artaxerxes did it in 444. Here's why they say that. Because where it says in here that it will be rebuilt with, um, I think it says street and moat. Right? Oops. Yeah. Yeah, moat. Sorry, I can't even work this. Moat and trench. The, the word that is translated um, street um, is a word that gets used for like pavilion and a bunch of different structural things, most of them that have walls. And so some of the earlier translations translated it wall. And the only decree that specifically talks about the rebuilding of a wall is the 444 one. That's the only time the wall actually gets rebuilt. Now, the reason that's so cheeky is this. I'm sorry if this bores you a little bit. This, just hang with me for like two minutes. Um, there are a couple places in the Bible where a number of months is given and a number of days is given, and they're related to each other. So, in Genesis, Noah goes on the ark at one day, and he gets off the ark at another day, and it's like, it's, it, says, and it says the day and the month, and it's seven months. And then in another place later, it gives the number of days Noah was on the ark. And when you divide the number of days by the number of months, it comes out to 30, right? 30 is the standard lunar month. And the Jewish calendar for a couple thousand years now has been a lunar calendar with 30 days months, which creates a 360-day year. And you go, well, that's not—that's going to fall behind 11 days or whatever a year, right? It is, except here's the thing. Or five days or whatever it is. Um, the lunar calendar is technically 354. It's, let's just not get in the weeds right now. So standardly, they just look at a year as 360 days. And what they do is every three years, they add a month. The reason for that is, is that in the agrarian ancient society they lived in, being on the month cycle in your relationship to the earth and to the seasons and to all that kind of stuff was really important. Um, and people used the stars and the moon to figure out where they were in the world. And so they would wait until the, the moon would come out in a certain way and the morning star wouldn't be in the right spot. And they go, oh, it's time to add a month. And they'd add a month. And that way you wouldn't have to have a smartphone. You could just look at the sky in the morning and you would know where you were in all of time, space, history. Okay? Now, 
And there's another place in, in Revelation where it's the same thing. It's a number of months and a number of days, and you divide them out, and it's 30-day months, and therefore a 360-day year. Now, if you do the math on a 360-day year, because if you're like, wait, 444, doesn't that put the end at 337? Doesn't that make Jesus too early? Right? See, so if you do the math, that's what it is. 444 puts the Messiah earliest at 37. Jesus is too early. But it turns out if you do the math on 360, it puts him dead on Palm Sunday. Like smack, like, because we know the date of Artaxerxes' um, decree in Nehemiah. And it literally puts Jesus on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey, prophesied in Zechariah, walking into the city, your Savior comes to you. Right? And who doesn't want that? My first—the reason why I'm not telling you that's the answer is because I don't know if you're supposed to add in the months or not. Right? If you talk to a Jewish person, they'd be like, you're an idiot. You've got to add in the months. Jesus is too late. So, but what if we take the most conservative date possible? What if we go all the way back to Cyrus and we take his date? Then the earliest the Messiah can show up is 54. Right? But if there's a break between the building of the temple and the Messiah simply comes after that. So if you don't take that word to mean immediately after, you just mean like, this has to happen before that. It's order. Then Jesus could come anytime after the completion of the temple that has to be done by 54 AD, which it happens. All of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. All that happens well before 54 AD. Now there's another thing that date does. It rules out the Maccabees, which is, again, the other time the Jews had a big win and they could have pointed to a military leader as the Messiah. And a lot of Jewish rabbis sort of try to do that. The problem is, is if you just flat do the math, they're too early by a hundred years. Literally, it's like 130 years, because that all winds up by about 175 or so. So the best non-Jesus candidate within four or five hundred years of when it happens is a group of people that are flat 130 years too early. Even if you use the most conservative possible date, you pull it back as early as possible, they're still 130 years too early. And so if that's the front stop, 54 BC, and the backstop is 70 AD, we are now open for nominations of messiahs that have come within that range that have ended transgression, ended sin, by atoning for all iniquity, have brought about eternal righteousness, have set up a kingdom that will never fail, and has anointed the most holy as holy. Within that time frame. As, you know, as Elrond of Rivendell said, our list of allies runs thin. Right? I mean, it's just, there's, I mean, it's just, there aren't candidates. So bad is the situation that Rashi, probably the most famous historical Jewish rabbi, when commenting on this, said that it was absolutely inescapable that this text was messianic, absolutely inescapable if David was a true prophet, that the numbers are literal years, and yet his best guess for who the Messiah is in this passage is King Agrippa, who's not a Jew, not a son of David, not a shepherd of God's people, did a few things to help the Jews, but when Titus came, he helped him get in position, get supplies, and massacre a million of them. Now you just tell me who you're going with on that one. I mean, I, I don't mean to be mean, but like, 
listen, I've read a lot of Rashi's commentaries. He's a very smart guy, a very good Bible interpreter. His Hebrew is wonderful. It's very encouraging to read him and like see how he saw the Old Testament to understand it through Christian eyes. He's not some kind of lunatic that's just trying to be like, well, like if somebody was going to come up with like a good idea, it would have been that guy. And the best he can do is Agrippa. He's just trying to pick somebody. Because you see, in, in his mindset, the idea of a human being being sacrificed for sin doesn't work. So it can't be Jesus. It's got to be somebody else. And so Agrippa's the next best thing. And, and I mean, that's like saying if you can't have LeBron James, you should pick up Nick for your next run at the NBA playoffs. I mean, not only can I not do anything to help you, I'm only going to do things to hurt you. Which is exactly what Agrippa did. And listen, part of the reason why this is so incisive is that when you get to Matthew 24, what people call the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is giving one of his last speeches before he's crucified, he literally says, listen, this is happening. When you see the city get surrounded, you leave. And he says, pray that it won't happen in winter because it is going to be bad for nursing mothers and pregnant women. It's going to be a horrible time, but you need to get out of the city. And you know what happened? In 70 AD, that happened. Virtually the entire Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem saw Titus coming, and they got together, and they escaped to Pella. And they left the city, and Titus surrounded the city, and he sacked it, and he killed a million Jewish people because of their rebelliousness against Rome, such that the Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, accounts that the, that the blood in the streets was weightable. But as far as we know historically, not one believer in Jesus, Jewish or Gentile, died in that fight because they got it. Jesus explicitly said, that thing in Daniel, it is going to happen. And desolation is not too hard a word for it. Now, the reason I think that this is important for us is um, you get—I almost get this sense when I talk with people, and it's partly because fundamentalist churches tend to be interested in Bible prophecy. You tend to get Bible prophecy at, like, fundamentalist Bible camps or whatever, and so there, there tends to be this attitude of, of, of Christians and non-Christians that to be interested in Bible prophecy is to be like a— like tank top and flip-flop wearing like third grade education Walmart shopper that like, you know, ties down the hood of their car with like a piece of wire. And those are the only people that would ever be interested in Bible prophecy because it's ridiculous. And what I'm saying here is like, just because people with education sneer at things doesn't make them not the Word of God, profoundly helpful, completely true, very clear, enormously helpful, and something that we should listen to. I mean, it just flat says there's going to be four kingdoms, here's what's going to happen, and then there's going to be stone that's going to grow into a kingdom that's going to take over all of— I mean, like, we got a hundred-year window for that? I mean, like, it, it, I mean it, these are very clear statements about when the Messiah come, comes, what he would look like, what he's going to do, that the Messiah is going to die— Stuff that was completely out of bounds for what people were looking for. And yet it was right there. And what it produced was two things if you go through the book. One is that it produces um, like just awe in God. In chapter two, when Daniel goes to bed and he wakes up in the morning and he has the dream and the interpretation of the dream, his first response is to get up and worship God and talk about how awesome he is. It says— 
During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and then Daniel praised God in heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Right? Now, the other, the other op- opportunity here is to just hear it however you want to, like Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? It was kind of a hard road for him. He heard the first prophecy about him being the gold head, and so he creates a statue, and then he tries to kill three of the people that God perfectly well apparently didn't want dead. And they survived a fire, and he comes out, and he's like, well, that's very interesting, right? And then, not all that much later, he has Daniel thrown in the lion's den, and he survives. And here's the thing. He still didn't get it. He just still didn't get it. He still didn't get he wasn't that big a deal, that God raises and he lowers, that nobody's that big a deal. And then instead of dwelling in this comfort of God being sovereign over everything, something that brought joy to one of his slaves, he couldn't accept it. Do you know what happened to him? It's in the book of Daniel. He goes through about a seven-year bout of insanity where he thinks he's something between a horse and a cow. It says that he's out, and the dew of heaven is dripping on him, and he eats grass. I mean, you just about—you can just about imagine him with his nails this long on a leash. He's just buck nuts crazy. He goes insane. And then it says at the end of seven years, he finally accepted that God was God. So it says, he said, I looked up to heaven— And I realized God was God, and I accepted that. And then God raised him back up to the throne. He serves out his ears. I think Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven, or is going to be, depending on what you believe about the intermediate state. The point here is, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, or you've kind of lapsed on that, or you're not really sure, you kind of believe in Jesus, but Jesus' rule over you is kind of weightless. You know, you're like, oh, I like him. It's going to, oh, we'll see. Um, listen, just like, just think about Nebuchadnezzar. Just don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, God intended to give you these things so that you could believe. So that, I mean, so many people walk around and they just act like you can't know God. Like, oh, who's to say? And there's all these people that believe different things. And how could we ever know? And there's no good evidence and so on. It's a prophecy 500 years before Jesus that lays out where he's going to arrive politically, when it's going to be, how it's going to go, what he's going to do, so that there are no other reasonable candidates in two places. We have copies of this thing before Christ in the B.C. era, so it wasn't like it was written after him. And yet, do you really want to say, great, just tell me who who the person is. Just tell me who the other option is. That's all. You'll be on the internet a long while. The last thing, and this will be quickly, is, um, sorry, is what it produces in these people. It produces this enormous strength. This kind of like, yeah, I I realize you're the greatest king in the history of the world. Listen, that doesn't really impress me all that much. Um, God is God. And I'm I'm gonna follow my conscience, and I'm gonna follow my conscience. I I don't really care what you do to me. I don't care how you incentivize me one way or another. 
or whether you just straight threaten me. I am going to do what I believe is right, and I'm not going to be pushed around by you, and I'm going to be who I was created to be, and I'm going to acknowledge the God that is, no matter what situation I find myself in, to the point where these, these guys, they've got nothing. They've got no resources. They're slaves. They might even be eunuchs, and they're going to get killed by a king and his armies, and they just say, listen, it is what it is. I can't lie and pretend you're God. The truth is the truth. I don't care how much you want this to be the case. I don't care how much I want to live. It's not true. And the more pragmatic societies become, the less they create people who are like that. We are expected to be pragmatic people who go with the flow and do what's right and say what we need to say to get by and to— kowtow to the right folks and do the right things and say that we're on board with the right stuff. And of course, I believe that. And I would want to go against this thing. And please don't excommunicate me as a cultural heretic. These guys just didn't live like that. And I don't think we were meant to live like that. And Jesus didn't live like that. And none of the apostles lived like that. And none of the early Christians, when they were facing lions that they weren't saved from, lived like that. We weren't meant to live like that. We want to believe we're so important the only thing that is unshakably divine about a human being is to be able to not change their mind when it's true, no matter what anybody does to you. That's the one thing where no earthly power can subjugate you. It's the only way in which you stand next to God and say, I am this and you can't turn me into something else. We have to become what John Pepper calls cardiac Christians adrenaline or emotional Christians. We have to become a different sort of person. We have to become the kind of people with an unshakable level of convictional character that, that no threat, nothing can touch it. How is that going to happen? And I think it starts with the realization that there is a God who reigns over everything, not just his people, not just your little life, but over every pagan king, every despot, Every person with an army at his disposal, every law, every rejection, every marital difficulty, everything. And apparently this God does not have an emotional problem with looking like he's not winning. And then he does. And I think that these passages, these simple Bible prophecies, even just understood in the most minimal way possible, apparently from the lives of these men has the potential to create that in us if we will just not be how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have said. If we will be post-Emmaus Christians. Let's pray. Father, um, there's so—I'm sure there's so much more, and I wish that I had eyes to see more and that we could display more and better and more strengthening things in these passages. But Father, I pray that you would send us away from here really encouraged, not snide, but courageous, trusting, empowered, and, and ready to enjoy and worship you. I pray that as we sing this last song, Father, please, um, please help us to give our all to be like Daniel when he woke up from that dream, having heard his dreams. Father, would you bring out of us joyful worship right now together as we respond to something that you did so long ago that you left for us. 
that's that clear a roadmap. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.